This is MJ. Welcome to my fully operational Star Wars podcast. Join me as I take my next leg on the journey to Ahsoka. This time I'm talking about Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope. If you didn't know, if you haven't been following along, I'm watching the films in order, like they should be, because they tell a single story. The prequel trilogy is the tragic fall of, or the rise and fall, really, of Anakin Skywalker, and... The sequel trilogy, well, or I guess the original trilogy is what it really is. We'll uh, we'll talk about what that is after we uh, talk about Return of the Jedi. So, uh, Star Wars Episode Four: New Hope. That's what I'm discussing right now. And I have to say, it's either a level of genius, madness, or just uh, fan obsessive compulsion or familiarity that makes me feel like. A New Hope feels so much like Star Wars from the context of starting with The Phantom Menace. And what I mean is, uh, you get to see the echoing and the rhyming of things from the first three movies in this fourth movie. And I know it's a little preposterous for me to talk about it as if Lucas planned this out properly, because he didn't. And I'm just going to break character for a minute here. As much as I don't like the sequel trilogy uh, and I think The Last Jedi is the best of the three movies and I think it's legitimately a good movie uh, even if it's not the movie you wanted I think it's a good movie and it has guts and it has uh, vision and direction and it's going someplace again you may not like it but um, I, I feel like Ryan Johnson was Lucasian in how he chose to do things his own way and make big bold choices Slow and Low is unforgivable, though. Slow and Low is absolutely unforgivable. That's the worst thing in that movie. Anyway, uh, so... Yeah, I'm not a contrarian. I just... I think I'm a careful watcher of movies, and I think I pay attention to Star Wars and understand Star Wars enough to know that, again, while you may not appreciate what he did, I think Johnson was kind of in line with some of Lucas's vision um, as far as being bold and being willing to take risks and make moves that other people wouldn't make. Who else would have made Anakin start off as a nine-year-old slave boy? Who else would have had a time-year time skip where his uh, infatuation with Padme turned into a cringe-fest romance? Who else would have had the last movie in the trilogy start with the ending of the Clone Wars, uh, and have (laughs) Dooku reduced to a handless man on his knees who gets his head cut off like uh, Anakin was playing Chucky from Child's Play with the Giant Scissors, uh, scissoring off his head with uh, two lightsabers, and then proceed to have that same awesome... Um, super edgy, super dark, super cool, super tough Darth Vader, who everybody had known for, I don't know, 20 plus years, and have him be a fool and a creep who's willing to massacre literal children. I mean, he basically turned Anakin into a school shooter so that he would get enough dark side points in order to have the dark side power to save his unborn child and Padme. A complete moral failure, a completely morally repugnant individual, and yet, in 
doing all that crazy stuff, Lucas put me in a position where I have warm feelings in my heart about Anakin. Because I got to see him go through all these different stages. I got to see him go through this process. I got to see the lure of the dark side tempt him and make him do illogical things that just didn't make any sense and didn't, you know, ironically, tragically, didn't result in him meeting the end goal that he wanted to. The very things that he was willing to sacrifice and give up for, uh, for he ended up losing because of him sacrificing and giving up uh, everything, throwing himself, throwing his soul, throwing his heart, throwing his morals away. And that brings me to uh, a big contrast. And ironically, Luke does not appear for like the first 25 or 30 minutes of the movie. We start off with Anakin's other child, Leia, and she's on the Tanta V4 putting the Death Star plans in R2-D2. Of course, R2-D2 and C-3PO are familiar to us as Star Wars fans, as viewers of the Star Wars saga, uh, the Skywalker saga, in this uh, in this mode, going 1 through 6. We know 3PO and R2 so well. Um, they've done such great things, they've had such great moments <laughs> with each other and with the rest of the cast of Star Wars, that seeing this, you know, bun-headed brunette, uh, you know, putting plans into R2-D2 and commanding him to help her in her royal mission, uh, it feels very familiar. It feels like it, it echoes, like, or like it is a, an, an intentional echo of what happened in The Phantom Menace and to a lesser extent, uh, <coughs> Attack of the Clones. And then when we finally, you know, we get to see the bickering between R2 and 3PO, which wasn't a major part of the prequels. It's uh, in the Clone Wars a lot, and it's definitely in the original trilogy, but it's not so much in the prequel trilogy. Um, but we get to see it here. We get to see the rapport that they have. And, you know, we hear name drops like Bail, Organa, and, you know, we know Leia's an Organa, so she's, you know, ostensibly his daughter. Um, but then when we get to Tatooine, we get to see that while Luke is not a slave... Not a literal slave, he's not a slave with a chip in his arm or body that'll blow him up if he tries to run away. He is trapped on Tatooine. He's trapped being a moisture farmer. He's trapped with Owen Lars, who we met previously. And it's just, it's really interesting how it all feels so cozy and so familiar and so much like this is the well-worn universe that that it is, and that it's become, that it's it's turned out to be, and I don't know, it's it's amazing. Um, you know, I've seen A New Hope so many times, and I've seen uh, the prequels so many times, and it almost feels like the more I watch them, the more they blend together, and the more they work. You know, Obi Wan looks way too old to have been Ewan McGregor in Revenge of the Sith, and now be Alec Guinness in A New Hope, but it works. And something about Alec Guinness's performance, it makes him feel like a haunted war veteran who's harboring all these secrets. And the way that Lucas went back and, you know, retroactively changed the continuity and backfilled the backstory by making the prequels, it feels like when he says that Anakin was a great pilot and a great friend and, you know, he was this great Jedi that Obi-Wan had all these adventures with and that Vader was a pupil of his who turned evil and betrayed and murdered Anakin and hunted down the rest of the Jedi. It feels like all those things are true and it feels like all those things blend in with... Like, it feels like like Alec Guinness is acting as if he's Obi-Wan having memories of 
Order 66 and of Anakin in the prequels and uh, you know even throughout the Clone Wars if you're crazy enough like me to have you know watched so much of that and it's remarkable how well made the movie is and I don't know it's really interesting there, you know Vader gives the line on the Death Star I sense a presence a presence that I haven't felt since and he trails off. Uh, one of my favorite uh, Japanese writers of tokusatsu uh, is Toshiki Inoue, and he does a lot of crazy stuff in his writing, but something that I observed uh, as I was looking at his writing very closely about a year ago, I, I never finished a, a certain show. I need to go back and finish it. I want to go back and finish it, just I haven't allowed myself to yet. But um, anyway, in this show, which is a, a Super Sentai, which is what Power Rangers is based off of, he writes... This strange universe, it's a near-Earth, it's a near-human universe, but it has all this crazy supernatural, all these crazy supernatural elements in it. And the way he writes the human relationships and the interactions between people and the magic, they all balance out, the magic of Super Sentai, I mean, they all balance out in this really interesting way where it's, you kind of assume that, okay, these are people. They're human beings. They wear, you know, they wear pants. <laughs> you know, they dress vaguely like us, except for, you know, kind of spacey with robes and whatever. They have special funky costumes, but they're basically human. So basic human rules and logic and um, norms apply to them. But then he sprinkles in these things, and I'm speaking of Lucas and anyway now. He sprinkles in these things where they're not normal humans. They're often this strange land far away and uh, displaced from us in time and culture and we just accept certain things as a given we accept things that are presented or said as a given uh, we accept the Clone Wars we accept um, you know the fact that droids aren't welcome in a bar for some reason uh, we accept all these things because they're given to us and they're shown to us and they're accepted by the characters that we're watching and that combination basically makes us as the audience suggestible and open to anything that the author that the writer the director wants to put forth to us so this implication that vader gives that he hasn't seen obi-wan since or he hasn't sensed his presence since and then you determine that it's oh it's the last time that he and obi-wan met there was probably a fateful battle between the two of them. We don't really know. And then later on, you get the follow-up of, uh, when I left you, I was but the student. Now I am the master. Only a master of evil, Doth. Those interactions frame our perception of this world that we have such limited context of. We get to see this world, this lived-in galaxy exploding with story potential and possibilities and rabbit trails to go down, which the EU has done to great extent, and you know, fan theorizing has done to a great extent as well, and we just are able to draw these conclusions from what's being presented to us in this world, because, well, if he's saying that, and he's a person, then it's reasonable to assume this, even though it's not necessarily reasonable, you know. We didn't know about... I, I have, still haven't watched Kenobi because I just wasn't really interested in it because, well, I like John Jackson Miller's Kenobi better. Uh, how do I know that if I haven't seen the show? I've heard enough people complain about the show that I'm pretty sure I, would, I prefer John Jackson, Miller's, John Jackson Miller's Kenobi book, which is fabulous, absolutely fabulous, uh, to the Kenobi series. I may watch it someday. I may not. Who knows? Um, but my point is, uh, 
you know, I'm familiar with Star Wars, both as a fan who's seen these things a bunch of times and also just somebody who's been watching these things, uh, you know, within rapid succession of each other as I'm going through getting ready to jump into this, you know, new, hopefully amazing Star Wars adventure uh, in Ahsoka. And I don't know, it's just remarkable to me uh, how it blends together. And I almost think it only blends together so well because George Lucas and his collaborators bottled lightning in making Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. They made it so good. They made it... It's such a well-crafted movie. And, like, I don't know if these are Marshall Lucas cuts with Obi-Wan or without Guinness's performance or what they are. Um, but something in his performance, something in the way Mark Hamill reacts to him, something in the vagaries of the dialogue and how it leaves itself open to interpretation. All of these things blend together. Uh, you know, the fact that it was shot on, you know, widescreen 35 millimeter film, like all of these things and, and the beautiful paintings uh, done by, oh, what's his name? I can't remember. The concept artist, he did paintings of uh, matte paintings on glass for the different effects too. Ralph McQuarrie, right? Anyway, all of these things blend together in such this magical way that it really makes it feel as if Episode 4, 5, and 6 could have come after Episodes 1, 2, and 3. And while they have different looks to them, it almost feels like it's intentional. Well, these movies look like this because they represent the Gilded Age or whatever. And these episodes look like this because they represent, you know, <laughs> uh, Soviet Russia or, the you know, the Soviet Union as it's in its decay and before it falls apart and, you know, before the... Well, whatever. Before it falls apart, I, I'm too. I'm not good enough at history to to name out specific things and not sound like a jerk. So I won't do that. So anyway, it, it's just remarkable to me that somehow these things knit together. And again, Obi Wan Elegant is way too old. Unless he just looks really old, um, and he doesn't say he's too old. And we know the man is not beyond bending the truth so he could be saying to look I'm too old for this because I need you to take over I need you to be in a position to take over whether that's because he's getting messages from Qui-Gon or he's just got a vibe from the force or because he feels like he's too old for this stuff uh, he's too old for this Sith um, <laughs> that, that uh, I don't know it just it, it creates this awesome blend and I'm I'm kind of floored by like what an amazing movie episode 4 is in and of itself, and then the way that it blends and, and picks up from where uh, Revenge of the Sith left off, it just, it impresses me all the more. And really, the whole, you know, the whole prequel trilogy where that left off. So, um, I found it remarkable that, like, you have out in space on the Tantive IV, uh, then you have, uh, you have the Tantive IV and the Death Star as a set or location. You have Tatooine as a location. You have... I guess, on the Millennium Falcon in space, a location. And you have uh, a little bit of... Um, where was the Maasai Temple? Yavin. You have a little bit of Yavin 4 as a set or a location. There's really only, like, four broad locations in this movie, and yet it feels like a huge, sprawling adventure that goes far. It goes a lot of places, and it's shocking that that's so. Um, oh, more echoes of the past. So, you know, Obi-Wan talks about Anakin being a great pilot and, you know, knowing these movies already, knowing, spoilers, if you're unaware, that Anakin is Vader, that he becomes Vader. Seeing Vader go out and lead from the front and take two 
you know, ostensibly really good TIE fighters with him, TIE fighter pilots with him, to go fight in the trenches and get his hands dirty, it feels so much like Anakin. And before, it just made, made Vader seem like, oh, he's this, you know, scary guy who, you know, has this magical force thing. Uh, like, when you originally saw it, and I guess he's a good pilot because of the force, and then having all of Anakin's backstory, it makes it feel like there are echoes of Anakin Skywalker in Darth Vader, that there's certain things that are true of him that don't let go, that he wants to lead from the front, that he wants to be in the thick of things, that he wants to be doing his duty, that he wants to be being that hero that he somehow sees himself as in this, you know, from this twisted perspective, this twisted point of view, and he wants to go out there and defend the lives of the millions or however many hundreds of thousands of people are on the giant space station that is the Death Star. And he wants to protect the peace, justice, and order that he has brought to his galaxy, um, you know, <laughs> with his hands so soaked in the blood of the innocent. And it's just, it's kind of chilling to watch it in that perspective. And, like, seeing him in that TIE fighter, and it feels so much like the Jedi starfighter that was in Revenge of the Sith that he was flying around in towards the end there. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just remarkable how much he feels like it could be the same guy, like the same guy. There's a, a core of the same guy in that suit. And uh, I'll just spill it now. I think the prequel trilogy is the fall, the rise and fall, the tragic fall of Anakin Skywalker, the tragedy of Anakin Skywalker. And the original trilogy is like the redemption of Darth Vader, the redemption of Anakin Skywalker through his children. And I'm pretty sure Lucas has said that in interviews and stuff, and I'm just echoing that now. But I, I really do feel like it, and I really feel Anakin invader, and it's it's sad. Um, and it makes it a little sadder and a little sweet seeing the echoes of Padme in Luke and the echoes of Anakin in Leia. I really feel like uh, she's her father's daughter, and he's his mother's son. Uh, Luke's more diplomatic, he's more gentle, he's more caring, he's more earnest and sincere, and Leia's more hard-edged and uh, <laughs> got a short temper and is willing to do whatever she has to. Whereas I feel, you know, Padme did what she had to, but I feel like she was a lot more straight-laced than Anakin ever was. And I feel like that's kind of reversed in, in the twins. And, uh, I don't know, it's just, it's so odd to see that. It's so interesting to see that. And it's like, it hurts knowing that Anakin grew up on as, as a slave on Tatooine and seeing that Luke has grown up enslaved to the Lars homestead in a way on, ta on Tatooine. He's bound there by duty and by family and by these bonds that he can't seem to break. And then those, you know, the death of Owen and Baru frees him and sets him on this journey where he can... Uh, become a Jedi like his father before him, his father who he didn't know, his father who he wants to be like, his father who he wishes to measure up to, and uh, it's just, it's, it's so sad, it's, it's such a, a, a sad, tragic, bittersweet uh, start to the adventure, and then, I don't know, it's interesting because you have Leia losing her mother and father and all her people on Alderaan as well, and, you know, those were her parents, and she knew she was adopted, but you know, of course, this isn't stuff we get in the movie. I'm, I'm carrying all this baggage with me from the EU and other places and other movies. But it just, it, again, the, you know, the movie stands on its own without all these things. And it's just amazing how much richer of an experience it is knowing all these different things. And I really like that. And I feel like 
the Ahsoka show is probably, or hopefully it'll be the same way that it'll be good on its own if you haven't seen Ahsoka in anything else. But if you've seen her in Rebels and in Mando and, <clears throat> uh, was she in Book of Boba Fett? I can't remember. I think she was an episode. Um, but if you've seen her in all these other things like I have, then, you know, we'll be able to carry those things with us, uh, into the experience of watching, you know, her show. And hopefully, you know, besides, like I said, besides all those things being brought forward with it, uh, it's just a good show in its own right, and it feels good to an audience that's getting exposed to her for the first time in her story. So, anyway. That's all I have to say. (laughs) I like A New Hope. I think it's a really good movie, and I love how it fits in the rest of the context of the other movies. So, uh, with that, that's all I have to say. Uh, This is MJ signing out. I hope you people... Take care of yourselves. Until next time. I hope you enjoyed that. Go to mjmunoz.com to leave any questions, comments, or other feedback you might have. There you can find all of my analysis, art, and fiction. I cover books, tokusatsu, comic books, anime, and more. Look around. You're sure to find something else that you'll enjoy as well. This has been a Story Over Everything production.